Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone. It's PC. It's Friday. We yep. made it to Friday. We Poppy's did. off this week. Pamela Brown is here with me once again. Let's go ahead and get started. Five things to know for this Friday, July 14th, 2023. New overnight culture war fights take center stage in a House vote for a normally bipartisan defense policy bill. House Republican leaders furiously trying to line up the votes late into the night after Republican hardliners attached several controversial amendments including some that would end diversity initiatives at the Pentagon and restrict abortion options. Jared Kushner and Hope Hicks have testified in the special counsel's January 6 investigation. Sources telling CNN Hicks and Kushner were questioned before a grand jury. Well, lights, camera, strike. Hollywood actors joining writers on the picket line today. It's the first joint strike since 1960. Tens of millions of Americans under heat alerts from coast to coast. Some areas could see records fall this weekend with temperatures reaching 120 degrees in some spots. And the World Health Organization warning that the widely used artificial sweetener aspartame could possibly cause cancer. The amount you'd need, it's a lot. CNN This Morning starts right now. Oh, good morning, everyone. I kind of froze when we started the show because I was like, oh, it's Friday. I know, right? This week has flown by. I can't believe I made it this week on the show. I've never, I haven't woken up this early for an entire week in many years. (laughs) We've had fun, but also there's a ton of news. And the best part about this morning is once again, there is a ton of news, including last night, late into the night on Capitol Hill, House Republicans scrambling to try and get the votes together on a bill that serves as the cornerstone of U.S. defense policy. For decades, it's been a pillar of bipartisan agreement. Now, it's firmly at the center of America's culture wars. The annual defense authorization bill has become the latest battleground after Republicans narrowly passed a series of amendments late last night, including one that would eliminate all Pentagon diversity and inclusion programs. Hardliners also made changes to the bill that include restricting abortion access in the military and ending health coverage for transition surgeries and hormone treatments for transgender troops. The controversial measures led to a long night of heated debate on the floor. I don't send my boys to school to receive indoctrination from the woke mob or to be sexualized by groomers. And the same can be said for our service members who are also parents sending their children to DODEA schools. You are completely eliminating any consideration of this nation's history and how we're going to recruit and retain members of the military. These amendments are terrible ideas for the national security of this country. We need to spend more time ensuring that we can protect the homeland and less time on pronoun training and the rest of this nonsense. What are you so afraid of? Why do you keep bringing these divisive issues to the body of this floor? You are out of order. You are exhausting, Mr. A woke military is a weak military. This morning, House lawmakers are set to return just a few hours from now to consider more amendments as those GOP leaders continue to try and get the bill across the finish line. 
I want to start with CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox. And Lauren, look, I feel like we've spent the last six years texting and emailing back and forth in moments like this, really trying to break down the policy of the amendments themselves. There's 1,500 of them. I have no doubt you've probably read all of them and understand them. But I don't think it's about the individual amendments here. Tell people, based on your reporting and what you've seen, kind of the bigger picture of what this bill is and what last night represents. Yeah, I mean, this is a bill that has passed for more than 60 years with bipartisan support because at its core... It is about making sure the military, men and women in service, have everything they need to be successful on the battlefield to defend this country. And for a long time, Republicans and Democrats put aside their partisan bickering on these topics because they knew that this was essential. And you never wanted to take a vote against the military, right? So you sort of just nodded and kept your head down, did the work, and made sure that all these controversial amendments and issues didn't become part of the debate because everybody understood at the end of the day they were standing up for something bigger than politics. That has all changed this week. And we should note that this bill passed out of committee with bipartisan support. This was a bipartisan bill. And over the course of the last week, over the course of the last 24 hours, that has completely changed because McCarthy had a calculation to make. He needed his right flank to be on his side for a myriad of reasons. Right. And it's, it's Speaker Kevin McCarthy's calculation he's had to make throughout the time, uh, the, the kind of period of his speakership up to this point. What, is, what strikes me about this, the, the policy issues, the issues themselves are not new. Culture wars have very clearly moved center stage for a certain segment of the Republican Party now for a couple of years, more so with House Republicans since they've been in the majority. But when you connect this to what Tommy Tuberville is doing on abortion, uh, holding up hundreds of promotions just for normal flag officers, regular flag officers, uh, on account of an executive branch Pentagon policy decision, I guess my question is, defense policy was always kind of third rail to some degree. It's entitlement programs and defense. You don't mess around with defense. You don't bring this type of stuff and create these types of issues on defense policy. Why is it changing? I think that it's changing for a couple of reasons. There's a very small number of House Republicans pushing to have these fights. We're talking 20 Republicans probably at this point. It is not the majority of the Republican conference. And if you talk to people privately, they will tell you this is not the kind of thing that they want to be taking votes on on the House floor. And this is certainly not the kind of issue that they really want to alienate their Democratic colleagues on. And I think what's changing is the fact that you have a group of people who have been told no, no, and then yes, multiple times. And they've learned that if they throw a fit, they get their way. And we're going to see this play out over the entire course of the spending fight that is coming up this fall. Such a good point. Stay with us. We've got a lot more to talk about here. It really is just a preview, right? So let's bring in CNN anchor and chief legal analyst Laura Coates and CNN anchor Audie Cornish. So Laura, to kick it off with you, what do you make of Republicans' push here to attach these amendments? You know, it's very stunning to think about the idea of our military being used as a military or a political pawn and knowing the preparedness that's required to have this, the sentiment, the morale that must be impacted, knowing that when you hear from Secretary Light Austin and the ranks of the military suggest that diversity actually helps to prepare the military, it actually is beneficial. The notion that culture wars would infuse this conversation is really telling, but also it's a notion of how powerful these issues really have become across the country. There would not be the sort of buy-in from the political officials and members of Congress to try to do this for the reason you're talking about, the third rail. This would not have been politically palatable for many years ago. It is now 
front and center to the wee small hours of the morning trying to get this done, and it's successful. And so I wonder what impact it will have on the party more broadly mm-hmm. as they're talking about what their platform will be and attach to the military. And let's talk about what the Democrats are arguing, Audie, that particularly with one of the most controversial amendments, um, stripping the DOD policy from reimbursing um, members of the military from getting abortions who may have to go to state because of Dodds, you know, Democrats argue this is really going to hurt, this is going to hurt service members. This is going to hurt recruitment. Fewer women are going to want to join the military. What do you think about that argument? I think that there's a broader conversation going on in which the military is a proxy, which is you hear a lot on the right about the woke military. You know, the assistant secretary for defense readiness is the highest ranking trans official kind of in the Pentagon. Um, We know that they've been very upset in general about diversity initiatives. So I think it's part of this like broader push to uh, exert control in an area where they have control, which is the power of the purse and spending. They can't complain to businesses about what they're doing when it comes to diversity. They can't stop businesses from maybe in the future carrying the -the over-the-counter prescription birth control pill. What they can do is tell the military what to do through its spending. I think that's a good point. And Lauren, I want to ask you about this because Audie makes, I think, a critical point here. They're not doing anything wrong. They're not doing anything out of the realm of what's in their authority right now, nor is Tommy Tuberville. This is always power that a senator has had, that members of the House have had. It's less uh, kind of the, the legality of it. There's no issues about that. And more the strategic decision to move to this place and the why to some degree. Um, and I have a question about that for a second. But Phil, oh, for a second, just because yeah, it's legal doesn't make it right. No, 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 <laughs> to no, be not, and it and does make point. me think back to the conversations in the 40s about the integration of the military, the racial integration of the military, and how that was going to harm readiness according to the people who were opposed. So there's always this way that uh, the U.S. government and particularly lawmakers can kind of make hay of any conversation around defense. But I think what's interesting about that, and and I completely agree uh, with the point that you're making, um, is that Lauren's point is so critical here and I think underappreciated in the sense that this isn't representative of the vast majority of House Republicans when you talk to them privately. And yet they won't talk about it publicly that they have objections to the fact that this has become a front and center issue, that this has become a defining issue on the defense policy bill that's passed on a bipartisan basis for 60 years because of the 20 members and the power they have and the platform they have within this conference at this point. Remember, Matt Gates got up and said that it was one of the people clips you played, right? He also pushed an amendment to strip Ukraine of security assistance. 70 Republicans went on the record to vote for that. But the frustration, of course, is, I mean, and I know from... Look, I'm not in the military. I'm not a member of Congress. Surprise, surprise. However, this idea that there is a personal viewpoint and then a political front that is portrayed to people is a tension we keep seeing time and time again, whether it's about an elected official and your alliance to that person or what you believe privately. There's a frustration among the electorate. We talk about the institutions and our government being um, having less credibility, being viewed more skeptically. One of the reasons for that is because I I can't believe what you say because I see what you do, right? This notion that there is going to be all this attention. But again, it's the power of the few who are able to be the most vocal. Like the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? And that that is an example of this. And so if it's not something that everyone buys into, I mean, Lauren, the notion that it's, it's able to pass nonetheless is stunning. 
Yeah, and we should note that, you know, this is going to be a really tough vote for some Democrats, Phil. There's yes. probably going to be a handful of Democrats who still support this, even though they are appalled by some of the amendments that were added. In it's part, the paradox because it's still a defense bill. Exactly. That they don't want to and vote against. How do you say to your constituents? I was talking to Jerry Connolly about this last night. Yeah. He said, look, I have 25 percent of my economy that is based on the military infrastructure in this country in my district. And I am having a hard time squaring how am I going to actually vote against this bill, despite the fact I'm appalled by a lot of the amendments that were added to it. It just shows you the tension that some Democrats are are feeling about how to deal with this. And it includes that 5% pay raises for military members. Some have to be on food stamps. They can't afford rent. I mean, this is really critical. Yeah, no question about it. Uh, Would note, we got to go, but the Senate's going to have a say here and likely the final say, which is, I think, a critical piece of this. All right, Lauren Fox, thank you very much. uh, Laura, Adi, stay with us. And for the first time in more than 60 years, two Hollywood unions are striking at the same time, bringing the TV and film industry to a grinding halt. SAG-AFTRA, the union that represents actors, officially went on strike just hours ago. So that means that new movies and TV shows will likely be delayed even more than they already were due to the writer's strike. That's in theaters and on both big networks and streaming services. So networks will likely run more reality shows, game shows, and reruns this fall unless they're able to reach a deal And according to union rules, members will also not be able to promote current work. CNN entertainment reporter Chloe Malas is live in New York. So, Chloe, what are the sticking points in negotiations? I mean, one of the big sticking points, uh, you guys, is artificial intelligence. Um, And many, you know, the writers have been on strike for two months, and that has been something um, that they have taken issue with and they have been holding out. Now the actors are talking about AI, residuals and streaming. So a lot of issues on the table. The actors of Hollywood are on strike. This is a moment of history that is a moment of truth. Disrupting the industry in the midst of its critical summer movie season. The actors of the forthcoming movie Oppenheimer walking out of their premiere Thursday. It's been a really, really tense few days for a lot of people, not just actors, but everybody in the industry who are going to be affected by this decision, but affected by a decision that that is necessary. We know it's a critical time at this point in the industry and the issues that are involved need to be addressed. They're difficult conversations. I know everybody's trying to get a fair deal. That's what's required. So we'll support that. And the actors from the highly anticipated Barbie movie voicing their support for their union amidst their global promotional tour. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm very much in support of all the unions and I'm a part of SAG, so I would absolutely stand by that. I would support the actors. Uh, uh, yeah. They've always protected all of the artists I know, and and I I really want them to um, stand strong and win their fight. The union is fed up over compensation in the streaming era, enough to walk the line. We are being victimized by a very greedy entity. I am shocked by the way the people that we have been in business with are treating us. The strike crippling a TV and movie business. Already limping during the Writers Guild of America strike. SAG AFTRA reps around 160,000 entertainment professionals of all kinds. And action. Along with better pay, actors say residuals for past work have dried up in the streaming era. Add to that artificial intelligence. Actors say AI threatens their future. The Guild claiming that studios want to use AI to replace background actors. 
They proposed that our background performers should be able to be scanned, get paid for one day's pay, and their company should own that scan, their image, their likeness, and should be able to use it for the rest of eternity in any project they want with no consent and no compensation. Studios say they've offered the highest percent increase in minimum pay in 35 years and that the actors aren't seeing reality. This is the worst time in the world to add to that disruption. Disney CEO Bob Iger notes the decline in revenue from traditional platforms and the industry-wide struggle to make streaming a viable alternative. There's a level of expectation that they have that is just not realistic. And they are adding to a set of challenges that this business is already facing that is, quite frankly, very disruptive. How they plead poverty that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. It is disgusting. In just a few hours, you are going to see writers and actors both picketing together, both in Los Angeles in front of the big studios and streaming giants and also here in New York. And you might also see some famous faces taking to the front lines with them. All right, we'll be watching. Chloe Malas, thanks so much. Well, Jared Kushner testifying before the grand jury investigating Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. We're going to tell you the key question that prosecutors are honing in on. And in a separate case, the special counsel tearing into the former president's team and its push to seek to be an indefinite delay in the classified documents trial. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, this morning, former President Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, becoming the latest member of Trump's inner circle to testify before the grand jury investigating Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. Sources tell CNN some of the questions were about whether Trump was told he lost the election. Former Trump White House aide Hope Hicks also testified early last month. CNN's Caitlin Polans joins us now. So how significant is this that both Kushner and Hicks testified. We know this comes after a long list of important testimony, right? Mark Meadows, Mike Pence. This is just adding. Yeah, I mean, there's two ways to look at it. It's more names that people recognize, Jared Kushner, Hope Hicks, people that are very close to Donald Trump going in and testifying, just showing how far reaching this probe has gone and that they're bringing these people not just in to talk to them, not just to look at their house testimony, but to bring them into the grand jury. But then on top of that, if you look a little bit closer, you know, Jared Kushner, he was a person after the election who had, uh, he was involved in a lot of different things, right? He was talking to the campaign, he was in the White House. But Hope Hicks is actually a really interesting person because she wanted nothing to do what was happening by the time January 6th rolled around. And she was also very one-on-one with Trump in hearing him say, we won the election, I don't care what else. And her response to him was, I don't see any fraud. No one sees any fraud. This is not what the facts are on the ground. And so her testimony would not necessarily be about all of these various tentacles that the investigation is looking at. Her testimony would be about Donald Trump himself and what the messages were going to him directly. And she told, I remember the January 6th committee, that um, he said to her, look, people won't care about my legacy if I lose. I have to win. So presumably that was part of this. Yeah, we'll say we won was one of the yeah. things that she heard him say right after the election when it was quite clear that he hadn't won. Right. All right. Well, we want to bring back Audie and Laura. Um, Laura, I have 150 legal questions for you. Okay, uh, done. Let's go. Rapid fire. Rapid fire. Rapid fire. 
I, I want to start <laughs> with Audie so she she doesn't attack me during the break again. <laughs> I saw it, America. Nobody believes that because it's like America's so, little brother right here. The idea, wow. The idea, Audie, of we've seen all these names. We know these investigations. They seem to be mushrooming to some degree as we get some closer visibility into them. He's still the leading presidential candidate in the Republican Party by 30 plus points. Do these things matter politically? For the former president. And I ask you this every time we talk know, and every time you get really angry at me. I don't, I don't. In my mind, though, I go to another place. No, it is basically too early. A lot can happen between now and Election Day, um, even for Donald Trump, who, to be honest, like, hasn't won recent elections, so to speak. He didn't show that his influence in the midterms was, like, so outstanding. Um, so it's not clear yet what his power is and where it stands. I have one other quick question for Caitlin, because the, the, um, the thing I don't understand is what they will say different from what we heard in January 6th. That's a great question. And also the question about why do you need them in the grand jury? Their testimony is under oath. Jared Kushner, Hope Hicks, they weren't declining to answer questions. If prosecutors are looking at a case right now, they have all of the facts already. This is not a fact-finding mission with Jared Kushner and yeah. Hope Like it's- I understand it's Dante Rung's closer to, you know, the center of the story. So maybe that's you. Well, now. but here's why, the thing. Why do they need that? Will they hear anything different than the January 6th folks? Well, first of all, it comes down to due diligence, right? And also, there is a proprietary interest. I don't know that you asked all the questions I need answered unless I ask them myself. And also, people can change. They can change their tune. They can change their memory. or They can change their intention to be truthful. And they might have a shift and change of heart. So I don't know if I interview you on day one and day 180, you feel differently about the person you were once loyal to. And now on 181, you want to tell me everything. So I have all these different factors going on. But also, remember... It has to be credible to a jury that you don't believe that you won the election. It just doesn't come down to me being able to have to go in, do a pseudo lobotomy of sorts and dissect your brain and say, aha, here is the lie that I can identify. It has to be reasonable to a jury to suggest with all of the evidence out there, with everything that was told, all the contextual clues, you're telling me that the ostrich's head was remaining in the sand in a reasonable way. And so but this all comes matter, out. Like, do the, does it about whether the person believes it or whether what they know? Meaning, if this long parade of people have told you over and over again the same thing, mm-hmm. you lost. Does a jury actually need to think that, well because you believed you won, nothing else matters. Well, ask yourself if you were a juror, right? If you And we're all conceptual jurors in the court of public opinion and journalists, see what I did there? But also the notion when you think about it, if I said to you, all right, hey, I am on the stand, a very crass example, I think it's appropriate to give drugs to a toddler. I believe that's the case. And everyone says, are you insane? Everyone knows this is not the case. It's not supposed to be done. But I tell you, this is what I believe. There's not credibility in that, and you can't be, you cannot escape the sort of liability you'd have. But in the end, it's not, it's more than just a semantics believe and know. It really has to come down to what can I prove from the contextual clues and the comprehensive evidence about what you intended to do? If we know what the case is. Jump in really quick, though, because I I think we're focusing on this because this is core to the case, right? They have to prove that he knew he lost, and this is why he was taking these. We don't know that yet, right? We don't know if that's. But this is what I'm going to say. Um, what makes this complicated and why I think that they are so um, focused on asking these witnesses and focusing on these questions about him acknowledging he lost is because there are also other witnesses who we know have said they told Donald Trump 
right, that he won the election, that, um, no, this this election was stolen from you. Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, um, Cleta Mitchell, the list goes on. And so I think that also yeah. adds another element to this. And that list you gave, so important. We have a tendency to focus and assume that all the investigation is targeting one person. There are a lot of players, and you named just but a few of them, who mm-hmm. were so intimately involved in all of this. We don't yet know what Jack Smith's full wide dragnet might be. It might include Trump, but it might not. Yeah, like, that's true. All right, Kaylin, Laura, Audie, I kind of want to just hang out. And I know. Can we keep this going? <laughs> all right, guys, thanks. Stick around. Diet soda drinkers, you're going to want to watch this next story. The World Health Organization just issued a potentially concerning update about the artificial sweetener aspartame that is found in those drinks. We're going to tell you why. Stay with us. Well, this morning, there's some potentially worrying news for diet soda drinkers. Emphasis on potentially. The World Health Organization has determined that one of the most commonly used artificial sweeteners, aspartame, should be put in what it describes as the, quote, possibly carcinogenic to humans category. Aspartame is, of course, found in many products, ranging from sugar-free gum to diet sodas. A can of diet soda can typically have about 100 milligrams of aspartame. There we go. Can diet soda of aspartame. And under the WHO guidelines, someone weighing 184 pounds could safely drink up to 33 cans of diet soda a day before breaking the safety threshold. Like a bad idea. That's a lot. You can count them. It's a, it's, so CNN medical correspondent Meg Terrell is going to tell us, should you be drinking Thursday? No. <laughs> can, can we have a reality <laughs> check here? I mean, we saw actually the graphics really helpful. You realize how much would be necessary to hit the threshold. Do people need to be changing how much aspartame they're consuming based on what was released yesterday. Yeah, Phil, so not based on this. That is from the WHO itself, actually. And so aspartame, of course, we know, very common sweetener used in thousands of different products from diet sodas, like the 33 you just saw on the screen, uh, things like tabletop sweeteners, breakfast cereal, chewing gum, even you know medicines like cough drops or chewable vitamins. This is in a lot of different things. And so the WHO took a look at this. This has been a decades-long sort of project that scientists have been looking at. Uh, And what uh, Dr. Francesco Branca, the director of the Department of Nutrition and Food Safety at the WHO, said about this review is that, quote, while safety is not a major concern at the doses which are commonly used, potential effects have been described that need to be investigated by more and better studies. And so they are saying they want to see more studies of whether there is a potential cancer risk here, but they are not changing any of their guidelines based on this. And essentially, they're putting it in the third of four categories of potential cancer risk. Other things in this category include things like aloe vera, occupational exposure to dry cleaning, gasoline engine exhaust, and traditional Asian pickled vegetables. Uh, And so, you know, with the limit, they are actually a second group came out and said, we're not changing the limit of what we're saying is the safe level of aspartame to consume per day. And under those calculations that you did, it amounts to about 33 cans uh, based on what the industry tells us is the amount of aspartame in those cans. Which is a lot. So what has been the reaction to this? And is the World Health Organization recommending regular soda as a potentially healthier choice? They definitely 
aren't. Uh, they, they are not <laughs> recommending soda really at all. They say there's a third option there and it's water and that's what they would recommend. Uh, but of course, you know, there's been a strong reaction to this, particularly from the industry. American Beverage, the Industry Association, uh, tells us there's a broad consensus in the scientific and regulatory community that aspartame is safe. They say it's a conclusion that's been reached time and time again by food safety agencies around the world. Uh, so guys, the WHO is not saying, yeah, drink 33 cans of Diet Coke or Diet Soda every day. They actually would rather we all drink water. Uh, but right now, they're not recommending any changes in the daily intake. All right, Meg, Meg Terrell, that was actually really helpful. Yeah, was, it was, thanks. Really important context, as always, from Meg. Thanks, Meg. Thanks. All right, the Secret Service wraps up its investigation into cocaine found at the White House, leaving some major questions unanswered. What we are now learning about other drugs found in West Wing and at the White House, that's ahead. Plus, the fiery exchange on the House floor that led to this response from a Democratic Congresswoman. I find it offensive and very inappropriate. A heated moment on the House floor during a long debate over the defense bill, which was thrown into disarray by a series of Republican amendments targeting culture war issues like diversity and inclusion. Watch what Republican Congressman Eli Crane said. My amendment has nothing to do with whether or not colored people or black people or anybody can serve. Okay? It has nothing to do with color Mr. Your Speaker. skin, your, any of that stuff. What we want to what we want to preserve and maintain is the fact that our military does not become a social experiment. We want the best of the best. We want to have standards that guide who, who's in what unit, what they do. And I'm going to tell you guys right, right now, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans, they are not, they are not doing this because they want the strongest military possible. Gentlemen, I hope my colleagues on the other side can understand what we're doing. Thank you so much. Mr. Speaker, to be recognized to have the words colored gen- people. For what purposes generally seek recognition? I'd like to be recognized to have the words colored people stricken uh, from the record. I find it offensive and very inappropriate. CNN's Laura Coates and Audie Cornish join us now. Audie, your reaction to this? Well, this is why history is important to teach in schools. Um, Eli Crane is just 43. He does have a very esteemed military history uh, career. He does not know actually about military history because then he would know that inclusivity is a major part of its story as it was at the forefront of integration in terms of integrating the armed services under Truman. This is very basic stuff. But I think there's this concept that, again, wokeness is new and it must be fought under any circumstances. Did I get that year right, Truman? I want to make sure. 48. I don't even I don't even get to that point because when you mentioned that, this is a, you said 43. I, I'm also 43 years old now. I know. I don't look it. But I'm also 43 years old. The notion that someone would think not know it was inappropriate to say the phrase colored people in the year 2023 is not a matter of history. It's a matter of the present. This is a, this is a moment when we have to take a step back and really say, or maybe a step forward to say, Somebody who is asking to represent the people of the United States, a jurisdiction in Arizona, certainly, but legislation that happens really affects all of us, does not have the wherewithal to know that that is an inappropriate term to use. I'm not talking about political correctness for the sake of political correctness. I'm talking about a term that is divisive, a term that is wrought with 
um, horror, a term that is one of those concepts that shows no evolution of thought, let alone um, the idea that you are aware of where we are societally. It is something that should be recognized. And I'm very glad that there was um, a level of offense immediately taken by members of Congress, both who were um, Congress people of color and those who were not, who took offense, because that should not be appropriate. And, you know, when he talks about and talk about other countries and what they tend to do in terms of diversity in their ranks in the military, United States of America has far more of a race-based diversity than many of the countries he named. And so the notion that well, why isn't the Chinese military in line with this notion of racial diversity? Why isn't Iran um, and other nations? He really misses the mark. But I have to say, before I can even get to a conversation about what Eisenhower has done, this is a member of Congress. You don't know better? You don't know better hey, now? now? Lori, here's where I want to jump in, because this is tip of the iceberg stuff in terms of the conversation about what's happening around the military. And I feel like in conservative districts, there is a very deep concern that issues of diversity, transgender ideology, all of these things have been seized on. And they have become part of an ongoing conversation that says a multicultural society is diminishing our institutions. That is the actual line of thinking. So when someone gets on the floor and says something like that, it's not an accident, so to speak. Mm -hmm. They are reflecting a, a percolating dialogue that they are bringing into the mainstream to the congressional record. Yeah, I think this is a good point. People always would give me a hard time because I would watch late night floor debates like this constantly because I always found that I learned a lot about the lawmakers when they didn't really think anybody was watching or they were tired and they were just going back and forth. Um, and sometimes you don't necessarily learn things that you want to see and you're elected legislators. I, I do want to ask you guys, uh, Laura, the, the investigation into cocaine found mm -hmm. at the White House, uh, a small bag of cocaine. It has uh, wrapped up. The Secret Service was unable to identify a suspect uh, or whoever may have brought it in there. They also cannot pinpoint when the substance was actually uh, left. They found no DNA, no fingerprints. I had no surveillance footage. Um, how does this happen? at the White House? That's the huge question here, right? You know, the notion of there being some type of a blind spot in relation and in close proximity to the Situation Room is pretty stunning to a lot of people. We know that there have been safety risks to the White House before, um, whether it's other substances that are white, that are sent to the White House, that have led to even postal workers having been killed in recent years as well. And so this is really one where we have to take stock in the security apparatus that is at the White House to ensure that for all the people who are invited in, who are coming and surround the president of the United States, it's not taken, taken lightly. But I will say the Secret Service has likely done a phenomenal job in trying to investigate a number of issues. and They've got a lot on their plate. But I am uncomfortable that this has not been solved. Jump in with something very different. Why not? The White House drug abuse and addiction is something that this country is dealing with on a very large scale. If you look at what they call crime, uh, deaths of despair under the CDC, um, this is some it's not as though this there are some places that are immune for, <laughs> from the potential for drug abuse. And I think everyone thinks it's a little bit of a joke to talk about it when it comes to the White House or an indulging conspiracy theories. Um, but the, the truth is you can see this in many communities, whether it's your actual house or the White House. Yeah, that's a really important point. All right, Laura, Adi, thank you both. Well, Hollywood grinding to a halt. What the actors and writers strikes mean for the industry and for audiences. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. 
Hollywood grinding to a halt this morning as over 150,000 members of the Actors Union joined writers on the strike. SAG-AFTRA, the union that represents TV and film actors, formally joined the picket line early this morning after contract talks fell apart. It is the first time since 1960 that both actors and writers are on strike. Joining us now is Lisa Ruspers France. She is a senior writer for CNN Digital's entertainment section. Hi, Lisa. Great to see you this morning. So this is the first time SAG has had a strike in nearly 40 years. It's a long time. What happens to our TV and movies? Everything grounds to a halt. If it's not already in the can, no one can work on anything. You can't work on TV, you can't work on movies, unless it's an independent film that doesn't have any connection to a studio. Nobody can work. So we're, you know, right now is the time that if this drags on, you're going to see a lot more reality TV and game shows, uh, things that aren't tied to acting and writing in that in the same way. So, Lisa, I, I do have to note, CNN does have some stuff in the can, yes. uh, and that includes some new TV coming out this week. The second episode of the original series, See It Loud, exploring the impact and history of black television. Here's a look at the new episode. Your biggest superstars in comedy have been black. This Chappelle show redefines sketch comedy. The Living Color set up a platform for black comedians blowing up. The Richard Pryor show was ahead of his time. You can watch our city hall every night. Adele Givens, Bernie Mac, Steve Harvey. Deaf Comedy Jam was a black comics paradise. Laughter is healing. Laughter purifies the air. And Lisa, why I can't wait to watch this episode is comedies really kind of allow black creators the space to talk about taboo issues like race in a way that maybe they wouldn't be able to in other places. Talk more honestly, I think, about the experience that they've had. Tell us about that, why it's so important. It's so important because historically, back in the day, you used to have white performers appearing in blackface, and they made blacks, uh, black people feel like you know, caricature, caricatures is how they were portrayed. And so black performers actually have been able to have the last laugh by uh, talking about race and history and politics and making it funny. So if racism is the disease, then comedy is the medicine. Laughter is the best medicine, they say. And so it's been really important for black artists to be able to, since they are not taken seriously historically and sometimes even now, to be able to use comedy to have their say. All right, Lisa France, great to see you. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. And the next episode of the CNN original series, See It Loud, The History of Black Television, airs Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Well, Jared Kushner is the latest in former President Trump's inner circle to testify before the grand jury probe into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. The question, federal prosecutors continue to ask witnesses. We're going to have that ahead. And a Houston police officer awarded with the president's Medal of Valor. The incredible work he did to deserve it. Coming up next. At the end of the day, I just know, hey, I did my job that day. Mission accomplished. A police sergeant in Texas jumping into action, stopping a potential mass shooting at a mall while working a side job as a security guard, a move that may have saved a group of children getting ready to compete in a dance competition inside the building. CNN's Rosa Flores reports on how the sergeant went beyond the call of duty to save lives. Houston Police Sergeant Kendrick Simpo recently received the President's Medal of Valor. I think it's one of the hardest jobs in America. The highest award the U.S. can bestow upon a public safety officer. I've been with the, been employed with security with the Gallery Mall for about seven and a half years. 
Simpo prevented a mass shooting at the largest shopping mall in Texas while working security last year. This is what I signed up for. A 14-year veteran of the Houston Police Department, Simpo says he heard over the radio that a man was inside the mall with a rifle. My training kicked in, you know, and it was just literally nothing but the kids from the dance competition inside. The, the suspect was wearing a t-shirt with the Punisher logo, a mask with spikes, and carrying a rifle in one hand and a Bible in the other. Heavy in Simple's mind, the children and their parents close by, so he didn't draw his weapon. I didn't want people to panic. As a cop, we only have a split moment to make a decision, and you got to go with that decision. Simpo says he ran towards the suspect full speed and tackled him. My thing was grab the rifle from him. That was my main focus. Um, I could somewhat hear people screaming. I literally, I just wrestled with him and I noticed the gun that was pointing towards my leg. You were outgunned. Bringing a gun to a rifle fight, I'm already at a disadvantage, but he actually had two guns. I just pinned him up against the wall, just holding the rifle until my help came. Police arrested Guido Herrera and recovered the rifle, a handgun, and more than 120 rounds of ammunition. Herrera was later found guilty of displaying a firearm in a public place and was sentenced to 180 days in jail, court documents show. But not a single shot was fired, thanks to Sergeant Simpo. And I was able to actually go hands-on with him, and I didn't have to fire one shot. It's one thing to be recognized outside of your home. But it's also important to be recognized at your home. To honor him in Houston, Mayor Sylvester Turner proclaimed May 23rd as Sergeant Kendrick Simpo Day. He didn't hesitate to intervene. He didn't wait on backup and ended up saving lives of people who he did not know. But that's what heroes do every single day. So the President of the United States thinks you're a hero. Leadership in Houston thinks you're a hero. Do you think you're a hero? At the end of the day, I just know, hey, I did my job that day. Mission accomplished. Rosa Flores, CNN, Houston. And CNN This Morning continues right now. Did Donald Trump privately admit that he lost the election? Jared Kushner before the grand jury. Hope Hicks before the grand jury. The New York Times reports Jared Kushner was asked if he ever heard Trump acknowledge he lost the election. So trying to establish intent, that's, by the way, the hardest thing for a prosecutor to do. House Republicans add restrictions on abortion access to a must-pass defense bill. If we want to show America that we can come together and that we care about women, we got to stop being Women. This bill does not support our troops. It's making women into political pawns so that Republicans can advance their extremist agenda. I cannot believe it, how far apart we are on so many things. Hollywood essentially came to a complete halt when SAG-AFTRA announced that they were going to go on strike. The first major walkout in more than 40 years. They're making it more and more difficult to just make a living. There's a level of expectation that they have that is just not realistic. Record high temperatures, danger scorching heat, and no sign of relief. This is a very dangerous heat wave. It is fatal. Since we've been recording heat-related deaths back in 2006, this is the highest number we've seen. Over the next week, nearly 70% of all Americans will see temperatures at or above 90 degrees. Well, the women's final at Wimbledon is now set. Congratulations to Marketa Bondrosova. 
Marqueta is, is a great, great player, and uh, I've already lost two times to her this year. So uh, <laughs> going for my revenge again, I guess, is working. So. Good Friday morning, everyone. Pamela Brown back with me in Washington, D.C. We have a number of major stories, including that strike uh, that is now composed not just of the writers, but also the actors, directors as well. What's going to happen there going forward? Huge news for what's going to be on your TV. But yeah. we want to start this hour with the latest member of former President Trump's inner circle to testify before the grand jury investigating his efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. Trump's very own son-in-law, Jared Kushner, Sources say some of the questions federal prosecutors asked Kushner were about whether Trump was told he lost the election. Several key Trump White House officials, from low-level aides to former Vice President Mike Pence, have testified before the grand jury already. Former Trump White House aide Hope Hicks also testified early last month. Any possible indictments from the probe will likely rely at least partly on what these individuals have said under oath and behind closed doors. So let's get straight to CNN's Caitlin Polance with more. She's been following all these developments. So what are we learning about this testimony, Caitlin? Well, this testimony didn't take place that long ago, which is notable in and of itself because this investigation has been going on for some time and there have been a lot of witnesses. And then they bring Jared Kushner, Hope Hicks, uh, into the grand jury in June. Two people who told their stories already under oath to the House Select Committee. And so their testimony and what they would say was already out there. Now the prosecutors are replicating it. And this crucial piece of it is that the people that are very close to Trump uh, were being told by sources like Kushner, like Hicks, they are being asked about how Trump was being told he lost the election. So that piece is something that for some reason, the prosecutors really want the grand jury to hear that. Okay, so Kay, then while this is happening, we also had the special counsel respond to Trump's legal team's request to delay the other major investigation that has led to uh, indictments related to the classified documents case. What did they say? Well, right now in that case, there's a big fight brewing over the trial date. So the Justice Department wants a trial date in December. Uh, that's a, that might be a little early. That's just the end of this year. Trump's team wants the case to be postponed indefinitely because he's running for president and they have a couple other reasons there. They want time to go through things. But the Justice Department came back swinging pretty hard at Trump's defense team, saying that there's no basis in law or fact to postpone this case indefinitely. They want to get to trial very quickly here or as quickly as they can. And there's a hearing on Tuesday when the judge is going to uh, see both of the parties for the very first time. There is a possibility she could want to address this at that time. And a big question that she's going to have to determine is how do you seat a jury for a man who's running for president? Trump's team says you just can't while he's running for president. There's no way to do it. The Justice Department says, no, we have mechanisms in the system to make sure that a fair jury is chosen for anyone who's on trial. All right, Caitlin Polance, thank you so much. Well, joining us now is the former deputy attorney general under President George H.W. Bush, Donald Ayer. He is among a group of legal experts that recently published at Just Security a model prosecution memo which lays out a path to indicting former President Trump for alleged criminal interference in the 2020 election. All right. Thanks so much for coming to talk with us, Donald. I'm curious, you know, Caitlin made the point that that these interviews with Hope Hicks, Jared Kushner, the former president's son-in-law just happened in June what does that tell you about where this investigation stands and what Jack Smith might be thinking, especially when it comes to that key question of uh, Trump acknowledging he lost? 
Well, I, I think I, I think it's hard, first of all, to you, you want to be careful in speculating about that. But what seems to me to be likely is that he is getting pretty near the end of his uh, of, of what he needs to do to feel he's got the case pulled together and ready to go. And so there already, as, as you all have said already, there, there, there are, all, there are um, good, strong pieces of evidence that indicate that he that Trump actually did know. And so here are people, members of his family, people very close to him, um, who probably have insights into that as well. And so I think what, what uh, Jack Smith is doing probably here is trying to complete the record before the grand jury with sworn testimony that can be added to, to the extent it's necessary, um, the showing that's already there that Trump knew um, that, he, that he had lost the election. Can I ask, because we were talking about this last hour, it's a it's a question we're all trying to figure out. How much does intent actually matter here? Uh, well, I, I, I think the, the, the memo that, that we've written is a memo that you know, is trying to come forward with a fairly concise and straightforward and simple way that the case could move quickly. And actually, the charges, uh, as a formal matter, the charges that we're suggesting, bringing and focusing on, don't literally, as a matter of legal requirement, demand that he knew he had lost. I think as a practical matter, however, um, to bring a criminal case for January 6th against Trump, the, the practical reality is you're going to have to be able to show that Trump knew he lost. He has to fundamentally know that what he's doing is something that was completely wrong and completely improper at that fundamental level. So I think Jack Smith must be thinking that even though it may not be technically legally required, to show Trump knew he lost, practically speaking, it is necessary. It's interesting, just reading this memo, um, you talk about how the, the statute of inciting an insurrection is implicated here, um, but you note that, that DOJ would use that only with extreme caution. Why is that? Well, I think the reason mainly is it's, it's, it's a statute that's pretty clear on its face what's required, but it's not been used since the Civil War. Um, and so it's a new thing, and, and we make the argument that it fits like a glove what Trump did. And it also makes it possible to make that allegation of insurrection against him in a way that you could actually make the case without getting caught up in the First Amendment issues, which, which we think uh, righteously the government would prevail on related to the speech that he gave on the mall. You can tell this story in terms of Trump summoning the people to Washington, then his conduct during the day, leaving out the specific words he used on the mall, but the, the tweet that he sent out that had to do with Pence's and doing his job and then sitting there for 187 minutes uh, and doing nothing and, and really lending support, he participated in an insurrection and, and, and supported it. And I think that's the kind of the idea that we're suggesting in the memo. I, I, I want to go through kind of the three kind of pillars to some degree of yeah. the memo in terms of you know, fake elector scheme, Trump tried to stop Pence from certifying the election, obstruction of official proceeding, um, inciting the insurrection, giving aid or comfort uh, to insurrectionists. Um, the first is, how, how did you kind of come up with those three? And I think more broadly, what was the genesis of putting this together? Are you trying to make sure that Jack well, Smith sees this? Or are you yeah. trying to inform the public? I, think, I think it's mainly, I don't, I don't think we think we can tell Jack Smith how to prosecute a case. I, I think, I think th this is one of a number of efforts. You've seen a number of these. Barbara McQuaid did one a while ago. Some of the same members, including Norm Eisen and myself and, some, and, and, and Noah Bookbinder, were involved in one a year or so ago. 
back before, actually back before the hearing, more than a year ago, back before the hearings. Um, I, I think the goal mainly is focused on the public. I think there's a lot of feeling that of overwhelming, uh, the overwhelming nature of the evidence. Well, how in the world can you bring a case like this? And so this is an effort to say you can do it and you break it into bite-sized pieces and you sort of recognize the phases of what Trump was involved in and you prove that case. And then there are specific acts. And we're focusing significantly on the phony elector schemes in seven states mm -hmm. and the people involved in those and Trump's key role in all of that. And, and that becomes, you know, the basis for false claim allegations. Um, right. And, and let me just ask you on that in particular um, and on the mens rea question, the state of mind, um, because, you know, his just just trying to channel what his lawyers would argue. They would argue that, no, actually, my client did believe um, that the election was stolen from him. Now, of course, there's plenty of evidence that he did acknowledge he lost, but there's also plenty of evidence that advisors were telling him that he did not lose and that the false certification push to have these fake electors was in case, you know, it fell through and he actually did win and they would need these electors to come forward if, in fact, it was proven that the election was stolen. Couldn't they make that argument? Well, I think Trump is probably likely to make that argument. But I, I mean, I think when you look at the record and we've laid it out, a pretty good summary of, of what that evidence is, the evidence really is overwhelming that Trump knew he had lost. He said it to a bunch of people. He may have said it to, um, to his family members. Um, and so he, he knew he had lost and, and he went ahead and did these things. And then the thing that's so, I think, significant here is he didn't just do something once. He, he, he acted repeatedly, extensively, in multiple settings. Uh, and, and part of what's involved here, I think, is background evidence is he calls these people in the States. He calls Raffensperger. He calls people in Arizona. He calls, he calls people to try to get them to not do their jobs. Well, that's part of phase one, or act one, as we call it, uh, of basically trying to do things to overturn the election. Um, and, you know... That the key thing is, how can Jack Smith and the prosecutors put together a story that involves the true facts, that has specific allegations that are provable and not too complicated? It can't be too complicated or we're all going to be overwhelmed and, and maybe it never gets to trial. So that's the, that's the challenge that Jack Smith has. He has, you know, it's like drinking out of a fire hose. There's, there's just too much evidence uh, to easily be able to streamline and simplify. And that's what needs to be done here. I'm, I'm thinking back to that January 6th committee, that huge report right. they released of, of everything that it collected. But they did such a good job. They did such a good job of telling the story and boiling it down for the public. And I think, I think they, they are a good uh, you know, guide and a lead in how to do this. And now our memo is an effort to kind of, you know, take that a step further and say, look, this can be done in a trial that could be done within a year. All right. Former Deputy Attorney General Donald Ayer, thank you so much you. for offering your perspective. Well, also happening this morning, TV and movie production brought to a grinding halt to SAG after the union representing 160,000 actors goes on strike. Members joining picket lines alongside writers who walked off the job in May. The issues, they center around pay, streaming service, residuals, but also things like technology, especially artificial intelligence. CNN contributor Sarah Fisher joins us live now. And Sarah, that's the, the thing that, of all the elements here, and they're all critical to the negotiations that are ongoing to the extent they are at this point, 
It's the AI issue, and I think the central nature of it. What exactly are actors concerned about, and how do they actually want it addressed? It's a huge issue, Phil. So essentially what the studios are trying to say is that an actor or somebody who's working in the background, think about a stunt double, et cetera, could have their image be screened. And then anytime it's used after that, the studio would maintain the name, image, and likeness, meaning that they could benefit and monetize that person's you know, image. But the person who is getting actually their image scanned would only get paid for that one day. So that's the big sticking point that the actors are very frustrated about. It's a huge issue, though, because AI is taking over every single industry, not just Hollywood, but the news media, all sorts of things. But within Hollywood itself, it's coming at a time where a lot of people feel as though they are not getting paid enough already. So the fact that they're not going to be able to make money off of their name, image, and likeness only after they do the scan is what's really this big sticking point is coming down to. So if nobody is working, I mean, what happens to the movies in production? What happens to our favorite shows? That's what we're all wondering. It's not looking pretty, Pam. So before, when we had the writer's strike, that basically canceled out most of the fall TV programming. A lot of consumers can expect their favorite shows to be off air this fall. But what the actor strike does is it really takes a hit at the movie industry. You know, the big concern is that with this proposal, the actors are not going to be able to necessarily promote a lot of their new films if they're on strike. That means they can't attend red carpet events. They can't attend press tours. And so if you're one of the big movie studios, you have to be wondering, do I want to push my movies out further along the schedule that are supposed to debut later this year? Because I'm not going to be able to do any big promotion around them. That's probably one of the big concerns right now. And that was actually what I wanted to ask you, because we do have two movies in particular that are about to come out that are two of the highest profile movies of the summer, Oppenheimer and the Barbie movie. And the Oppenheimer Uh, cast, I think, walked out of the London premiere before the actual screening started. Tell us about that. Yeah, they had a plan, Phil, which I thought was super interesting. Matt Damon telling Variety that they had discussed it as a cast because, remember, they were a few hours ahead of time so that they kind of were able to plan this out, what they were going to do if the strike was authorized while they were on that red carpet. And essentially they said, look, we're going to walk out in solidarity. We will not attend the screenings. And that's exactly what they did. Now, the big thing to remember here is that Oppenheimer and Barbie, both of those two major hits expected this weekend, have had months to promote that film. You've seen Margot Robbie everywhere in her Barbie outfits. Can you imagine a film coming up where you don't have actors that are able to promote it? That's why this is going to be a very big deal for Hollywood. Absolutely. Sarah Fisher, great reporting. Thank you. Yeah, it's interesting. It's not the ones like them. They've already been promoting them, right? That was a message that was sent, but they've already done all the work. They've already done all the work. It's the other ones that are coming out where they can't promote it. It's interesting. New overnight. Culture war fights take center stage in a House vote for a normally bipartisan defense policy bill. We're going to speak to former Defense Secretary Mark Esper about that next. And Vladimir Putin speaking out about the Wagner Group following its rebellion inside of Russia. We'll tell you what he said. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. Happening overnight, a critical defense bill has become the latest battleground in America's culture wars. House Republicans narrowly passed controversial changes to the annual defense authorization bill, which has been a pillar up to this point, nearly six decades of bipartisan agreement, and serves as the cornerstone of U.S. defense policy. The measures included eliminating the Pentagon's diversity programs, restricting abortion access in the military, and ending health coverage for transition surgeries and hormone treatments for transgender troops. It was a long night of heated debate on the House floor. A woke military 
is a weak military. Their time is wasted learning whatever nuke, new woke ideology comes out of leftist universities. We need to spend more time ensuring that we can protect the homeland and less time on pronoun training and the rest of this nonsense. Top Democrats in the House, they are furious and vowing to oppose the bill. The House reconvenes in less than two hours from now to consider more amendments as GOP leaders try to get it across the finish line. And joining us now, former Secretary of Defense under Donald Trump, Mark Esper. He serves on the board of the weapons technology company, Epirus. Thank you so much for coming on. So your reaction to the House adopting these amendments uh, to the NDAA? Well, good morning, folks. Uh, well, first of all, really, in some ways, it's not unusual. I, uh, I ran the policy shop for the House Armed Services Committee nearly 20 years ago or so. And, and these things come up at times. Uh, clearly, the country is wrestling with these cultural issues. Both parties are. Uh, both parties are, are torn within themselves, the Republicans more so. And it tends to come out in these situations where you see policy initiatives, as, as you discussed in your lead up, come out in terms of amendments. Uh, look, I, I think at the end of the day, the defense policy bill will pass this year. It has to move through the House. The Senate has to do its own work. And then the leadership of both sides get together and work it out. But um, I think this is part of the process. And it's the role of, of, the, uh, of the Congress to sort out uh, the, these types of policy issues uh, for the military when, uh, when there is divisiveness within the country. On that point, though, look, I, I mean, I covered Congress for 12 years. Uh, I, there are always amendments. Most of them are germane, but a lot of them track with whatever political party's kind of ideology is on the issue, whether the left or the right. Um, but there's always a center. And, and I think that's what has made it different than other pieces of legislation, particularly over the course of the last decade or so, is that Hask, the House Armed Services Committee, which you were on, and the Senate Armed Services Committee always had a bipartisan approach to this when it came out of committee. And then there was always going to be 250 to 300 members across both parties that would get together and get it across the finish line. What's different now, beyond the, the actual text of the amendments, is this is a Republican-only bill at this point. Um, and even if the Senate ends up jamming them uh, kind of on the back end, which I think everybody expects, that's different. It, it just demonstrably is different than normal. Well, I actually thought that the bill came out of committee uh, with unanimous or near unanimous support. It, maybe I'm no, mistaken. No, I know. That's what I'm saying. The, the, the committee process was very much in line with what has been yeah. the process for decades. That's right. And that, it's that, what's happened since. That reflects that center. That yeah. reflects that center, center, center that you're talking about. I mean, the, the bill managers are very, and the, the chairman and ranking members of those committees are very conscious of that. They, they strategize about what they can get out of their committee, what they can get to the floor, knowing full well that there will be a fight on the floor. And look, I think we've got to see how this plays out. These are these are important issues, right? The country is wrestling with these issues right now in the wake of the Supreme Court decision, in the wake of uh, you know Biden administration policies. And so, like I said, I think this the House is acting now. We'll see where they come out today. The Senate will act. I think the, the temperature will be turned down some in the Senate. But um, uh, we'll see what happens. These are these are big issues. I want to ask you, our Wolf Blitzer interviewed the Defense Secretary Austin, and he said that Senator Tommy Tuberville needs to lift the holds on hundreds of senior military nominations. You and six other former defense secretaries sent a letter earlier this year to Senate leadership over these military holds. Do you agree that this is a national security issue? Yeah, first of all, look, I, again, I think I've said this before. Senator Tuberville has a legitimate policy issue he's concerned about. His constituents are concerned about. Um, but I don't believe that... Uh, uniformed military officers, particularly our most senior ones, should be held hostage, should be used as political pawns. And as we wrote, we be, being myself and the, the former Secretary of Defense, it does have an impact on military readiness and over time could affect national security. So my view is 
uh, don't use the military as political pawns. It just politicizes the uniform. Um, they, uh, they don't dictate this policy. This comes out of civilian leadership. This comes out of the White House. Um, find other ways to make to, to address these issues. And, and my view is give uh, Senator Tuberville a vote in committee on the on the Senate floor, whatever it takes. But give him a vote. Let the issue be debated out, but don't take hostages. I want to ask you before we let you go, we've talked over the course of the last couple of weeks often about the, the mutiny, the, the Wagner Group mutiny in Russia. Uh, we haven't heard a lot from President Putin. He told a Russian newspaper today that the military group behind that rebellion doesn't actually exist. I think the quote was, well, Wagner PMC does not exist. We do not have a law for private military organizations. It simply does not exist. Um, the, what he's saying about the law is factually inaccurate, um, despite what they say. Um, but I think my bigger question right now is, what do you make of him saying Wagner doesn't exist? It has been such a critical component, at least implicitly, of Russia's foreign policy uh, influence for years. Yeah, look, they certainly do exist. During my time as Secretary of Defense, we were very cognizant of their presence in the Middle East, in Africa, of course, several countries there, and in other places. And they still are in those places. So they exist. They've been supported by Putin. They've been funded by Moscow. Uh, look, I, I think this uh, is it continues to be a, another evolution of, of how Putin is trying to play this. Uh, uh, Wagner, he needs a Wagner. Maybe he changes the name. Maybe this is rebranding. But he he needs that foreign policy tool, if you will, to do what he needs to do in the Middle East and Africa and elsewhere. And look, they've also been the most effective Russian unit on the battlefield in Ukraine. So he's still wrestling with the, with this. And the, the other interesting part of it is we, we now know that over two dozen Russian military officers, not not Wagner now, two dozen are either suspended, they're being detained, they're being interrogated, they've been fired. There's a lot of turmoil going on within the Russian military, particularly its most senior ranks. And I, I think this is another interesting aspect that, that plays into this drama with Wagner and Prigozhin as well. Mm, really interesting to hear your perspective on this. Uh, as the former Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, thank you. And coming up on this Friday morning. It was completely toxic and devastating to my sense of self. Time and time again, the academy and the institution don't protect their, their people. Our investigative team here at CNN discovered a cover-up of a damning report into the Coast Guard's mishandling of sexual assault. Now, a top senator is demanding an investigation. Plus... That is an all-out brawl breaking out in Kosovo's parliament. Why lawmakers there came to physical blows. New this morning, a brawl breaking out at Kosovo's parliament during Thursday's session, and it was all captured on camera. That's Kosovo's prime minister who was speaking when he was interrupted by an opposition MP who threw water in his face. Instantly, a fistfight ensued between the ruling party and opposition members. Kosovo's president condemned the fight, while Albania's prime minister called it shameful. Well, a top U.S. senator is calling for an inspector general's investigation into the Coast Guard's mishandling of sexual assault allegations. And it comes after CNN reported the Coast Guard uncovered covered up, I should say, a damning report that found it mishandled dozens of cases of substantiated sexual abuse and rape. You saw it here first on CNN this morning, and now lawmakers are demanding answers. 
we failed to provide the safe environment that every member of the Coast Guard deserves. Coast Guard Commandant Admiral Linda Fagan apologizing at a congressional hearing. The Coast Guard tragically failed to protect its most valuable assets. This is disturbing and unacceptable. It is uh, heartbreaking, maddening, frustrating, and intolerable. Dozens of substantiated cases of sexual abuse and rape were found during an investigation dubbed Operation Failed Anchor. But Coast Guard leaders never shared that information, not even with Congress. Senator Maria Cantwell saying she's asking for an inspector general's investigation. Cannot tolerate the fact that the Coast Guard did not notify us of this. We cannot have the media be the policeman on the beat. Fagan announcing the Coast Guard launched its own 90-day review of what went wrong. Full transparency and accountability in the system, not just for perpetrators, but for leaders who fail to abide by the policies that we've got in place. Operation Failed Anchor ran from 2014 to 2019, but only looked at assault cases from the late 80s to 2006, leaving a major gap in the findings. Instead of releasing the information and fostering change, Coast Guard officials kept it all secret until CNN called. Fagan has only been commandant for a year. When the CNN uh, investigation started asking questions, that was when I first became aware of the totality of the fouled anchor. The Coast Guard has failed the victims. Carrie Carwin is one of more than a dozen former cadets who have told CNN about their assaults at the academy. Hers happened in 1995. She even wrote about the incident in her journal at the time, saying a football player came to her room, bit my neck and felt up my chest. Luckily, I got away and he left, but he said he was going to come back and finish what he started. And I was terrified. She says had the Coast Guard taken action on assaults like hers decades ago, perhaps other victims would have been spared, like this woman, a recent graduate of the academy who says she was raped three times as a cadet. It was completely toxic and devastating to my sense of self. So you have to wonder if they had released this report, if they had done more to crack down on sexual assault, how your experience would have been different. I often find myself wondering what my, my future would have been like. And time and time again, the academy and the institution don't protect their, their people. It did nothing to save me when I was asking for help. And it's devastating. Many of the alleged perpetrators graduated from the academy and went on to high-ranking positions in the Coast Guard or other branches of the military. We've got a culture in areas that is permissive and allows sexual assaults, harassment, bullying, retaliation that's inconsistent with our core values. We have got work to do. Admiral, it's very frustrating to hear that you think there is a culture of assault at the Coast Guard. We do not have a culture of assault in the Coast Guard but we are not where we need to be. There are, it, just like on a ship when you have rust, we've got pockets of rust that need to be eliminated from the organization to ensure that there's no silence around it, that every victim feels safe coming forward. And we should note that right after this hearing, I was supposed to do a sit-down interview with Admiral Fagan, who you just saw right there, but the Coast Guard backed out last minute. One of the key questions we still have is, how much she and other leaders knew about the report, current leaders. Um, as you heard her say in this hearing, Bill, you know, sh she said she didn't know the totality about Operation Feld Anchor until CNN started asking questions. 
And she admit she did admit that she knew some about it. And so the, the question, the obvious follow up question would be, well, if you knew some about it, then why didn't you follow up? Why didn't you at that time try to understand the totality? Why didn't you at that time brief Congress? And it's also interesting because she she kept noting that this was very much in the past. Right. This is the past. We're in a new era in the Coast Guard Academy. But we spoke to at least six cadets who say they were recently sexually assaulted. And you heard the one that I interviewed there who was in shadow, who said she felt like she was the one who was punished and that the predators, those who sexually assaulted her, went on to thrive and were essentially awarded. So, you know, it is it's really interesting. And hopefully we will get the opportunity to do that sit down interview. Well, you should. And I also like. I can say this because I'm not actually on the story, what you're saying implicitly. Totality is a loaded and lawyered word. And when you hear that, you realize, all right, there are questions that need to be answered. It was great reporting. It's a great piece. And just quickly to give a shout out to our team, uh, Melanie Hicken, Blake Ellis, Audrey Ash. This was a whole team effort. Yeah, a great team it is. All right. The first Republican debate, it's less than six weeks away, recounting. And we're getting a look at who qualified and who is coming up short. We're going to speak with 2024 presidential candidate Asa Hutchinson about his push to make the stage next. With less than six weeks to go until the first Republican presidential debate, the race is on to make the stage. These are the candidates who, as of today, say they have met the donor threshold of 40,000 individual donations to qualify. Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, Tim Scott, and Vivek Ramaswamy. I totally botched that. <laughs> Ramaswamy, my bad. They, of course, also have to hit at least 1% in three national polls or a combination of national and state polls and sign a pledge to support the eventual nominee. Governor Asa Hutchinson is among those who has notched 1% and one national poll. But so far, he has not reached the donor threshold. This photo of an event he held on Tuesday in Iowa has some suggesting that he has a tough road ahead of him. The picture has gone viral because it appears to show just six people in attendance. Joining us now is former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. Thank you so much for coming on, Governor. So did that photo accurately depict how many people showed up? And what do you say to those who see that as a sign that your campaign just isn't catching on? Well, whenever you look at my campaign in Iowa, where I am today, uh, we've had large crowds, we've had small crowds, and, you know, there's some benefit to a meeting with a small group of people where they get to ask questions. So let's not diminish the small things in a campaign. They add up, and I enjoy that question and answer. So uh, the small crowd that's depicted there actually was in a restaurant where I was shaking hands, and I enjoy that kind of engagement here in Iowa. Our campaign is uh, moving forward every day. Uh, I'm so delighted that we did meet the threshold for the polling requirement, and now we've got to meet the uh, donor threshold so everybody can help by going to asa2024.com and help us to get uh, that threshold to be on the debate. Well, and on that note, um, at last check, you had told The New York Times you had more than 5,000 donors. That is quite a ways from the 40,000 you need to make the debate stage next month. Can you make up the difference in the next month? We can. It's really encouraging to me to see uh, over 1,000 new donors uh, every week 
coming into our campaign. You think about that nationally, that's a significant number. We want to escalate that, so we'll make it. It's just a question of how quickly we can get there, but we want to be on that debate stage. The voters expect the candidates to be there. They don't like artificial restrictions to keep candidates off because this is the first time they have an opportunity to really see the candidates in relation to each other, how they mix and match on the issues where the differences are, and how they're going to contrast with uh, Joseph Biden and his failed policies. Some of your rivals have come up with creative ways to incentivize donations from individuals, like offering a 10% commission to people who bring in donations. Others are offering these gift cards or a raffle for college tuition money. What do you think of those strategies? Would you try something like this? <laughs> well, sure. But it also just illustrates how silly this whole concept is. They're telling campaigns you've got to reach to these uh, limits to uh, make sure you get 40,000 donors. You can do that by uh, your rhetoric and getting people fired up. You can do it by gimmicks. And so we're going to have to do what we need to do to get there. Uh, but I'm just pleased with uh, the response that we get. People want the candidates on the debate stage. And I've never seen an issue about or criteria for the debate being so well known among the public. You can go to any restaurant and they've heard about the 40,000 criteria. And so that's actually fun uh, to see the response and how people want to help the candidates to get there. So it sounds like you're not a big fan of the policy, but in some ways... Uh, it's been a, a fun to connect with voters in that way. So the New York Times recently framed your campaign as selling Bush-era Republicanism, but adding that, quote, buyers are scarce. Does the tepid support you have seen so far suggest that your brand of politics just may not have a home in today's Republican Party? Well, actually, there's been a good response, uh, and I tell uh, the story that the highest compliment I've had uh, as a candidate is that uh, they say you're normal. You know, and normal is not bad for somebody who wants to run a country without chaos. And with the experience that I bring as head of the DEA and Homeland Security, uh, whenever you look at my balancing a budget as governor, lowering taxes, uh, my work in Congress, the last time we balanced the federal budget, uh, these are leadership uh, experiences that are critical to our nation. I've handled crisis. Uh, I understand law enforcement. I understand violence in our cities and what needs to be done. And so people will yearn for solutions. And when you get into these small groups, large groups, uh, they're talking about uh, fentanyl. They're, they're asking about our relationship with China. These are serious issues that we face. And uh, it's an opportunity to make sure we can talk about the policies that bring our country forward. And normal is not bad in contrast to chaos. All right, let me ask you, you're going to be attending the Family Leadership Summit in Des Moines today along with other candidates. Iowa's Governor Kim Reynolds is expected to sign a new law banning abortion after six weeks as early as today. We know you've signaled support for a 15-week federal ban. So is Iowa, in your view, making a mistake? Is it too restrictive? No, that's uh, every state should make their determination on this. And uh, while there's a debate about a national abortion policy, it's most likely going to continue at the state level. And I think Governor Kim Reynolds has done a good job on this. Uh, the Iowa legislature has passed that uh, six-week bill twice now. It's a heartbeat bill that says if the unborn child has a 
has a detectable heartbeat, then uh, abortion is not permissible under those circumstances. And so uh, I support what Iowa has done. And today we'll be talking about that. Also, I just say that uh, Governor uh, Reynolds being attacked by uh, former President Trump for being neutral is pretty ridiculous if you want to carry Iowa. And so all of those will be uh, topics of conversation, but I support Governor Reynolds and what she has done with the legislature in protecting unborn life. So let me just, just ask you about that, because I went back and read um, your op-ed on the 2021 uh, transgender youth treatment ban, you vetoed that. And in the op-ed, you talk about how it was government overreach, that the government should not be intervening in people's personal lives, that these were sensitive and complex issues. So how does that view square with your views on the Iowa bill and also this federal ban on abortion with the Republican principles you've touted about not allowing government intervention in personal private affairs? Well, we, I've consistently been pro-life throughout my uh, public career. Uh, and whenever you're looking at life in the womb, that deserves a protection. Uh, whenever you look at parental decision making, uh, there's certainly a level. For example, I, I think it's uh, impermissible for a parent to say uh, there ought to be transition surgery uh, for a minor. But there's a place that you can go too far in restricting parents' decision making when it comes to the health care of the children. So you got these are areas that you've got what to about have like serious a teenager discussions parents, on. What about a teenager, um, you know, a 14-year-old? Uh, whose parents want their, that child to get an abortion. I mean, wouldn't that impose in the same way you're saying the transgender bill would have? Well, first of all, uh, you'd have to comply with the law of that state. The parents would have to uh, provide uh, permission or it'd have to go to uh, a judge for an independent review of that and the uh, voluntariness of it. Uh, and so there's some protections in there, again, for the life. These, these are... In every issue we talk about, whether you're talking about parents' role in health care or vaccinations or whether you're talking about the parents' role in giving consent for health care, uh, these are areas that the, the legislature and at the lowest level of government ought to make these determinations. And to the extent possible, government should stay out. But certainly whenever you're looking at protection of, of life, whenever you're talking about inalterable uh, decisions for the future, uh, then there's a role for the state to come in and say that goes too far. I vetoed the legislation in Arkansas because it was unconstitutional, and the uh, federal judge uh, found exactly that. All right, Asa Hutchinson, thank you for your time. We'll be right back. Well, Pam, I think you know it's Barbie's world. It and is. it's open for business. I was going to own that line no matter what. It's open for business. <laughs> Since the iconic doll was launched back in 1959 by a toy company, Mattel, Barbie has captured the hearts of millions across the globe. And now, her own live-action film debuting next week. CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz has more. Barbara Millicent Roberts. You know her as Barbie. Parents, Mattel... Born in 1959, but doesn't look a day over 19. Everyone had a Barbie, and it was the thing to have a Barbie. Next week, Barbie comes to life in a new movie with an A-list director and actors. Hi, Barbie! Hi, Ken! 
distributed by CNN's parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery. It's an incredibly important milestone for the brand. Barbie, beloved by girls and boys around the world, has had ups and downs. Back in 2014-15, we, we hit a low. Uh, and it was a moment to reflect in the context of why, why, why did Barbie lose relevance? She didn't reflect the physicality, the look, if you will, of the world around us. Now Barbie, Ken and friends have many different skin tones, shapes and special traits that make them look more like us. But this year's first quarter sales at Mattel slumped, down 22% from last year's. How is... Mattel and Barbie viewed as a brand. There's been a lot of decline in that differentiation and that relevance that keep a brand fresh and top of mind from a purchase perspective. And when that happens, brands go into a place of fatigue. Mattel hopes this new movie will give them the boost they're looking for. We also now have the opportunity to reach new ages and stages that ultimately, from a business perspective, provides huge merchandising and monetization opportunities. We're standing in front of Barbie. At Hombomb Toys, Barbie. owner Eileen Geyer can't keep movie Barbie on the shelf. Within a day, they were gone. Have you always had Barbie and Ken and friends in store? Absolutely. It's a staple. It's the moms and dads who are more nostalgic than the kids. But that nostalgia? isn't for everyone. I don't know how she's evolved. Yeah. Like, does she have a college degree now? The movie has calculated for that. We haven't played with Barbie since we were like five years old. Oh. And for others, you're never too old for Barbie. I am 90 years old. Or I should say, 90 years young. <laughs> Carol Spencer didn't grow up playing with Barbies. This was my first project. But Barbie wouldn't be, well, Barbie without her. I was a designer for the Barbie doll starting in 1963 for over 35 years. And I loved every minute of it. While Carol helped make Barbie, Barbie helped make Mattel. As other toys have come and gone, Barbie is still strutting. Barbie really carried Mattel for a great many years. I thought of every child who played with the Barbie doll as my child. So let me tell you, I have a big family. <laughs> and I love it. And that is the magic and power of Barbie. And in 1959, when Barbie debuted, she was a teen fashion model. They then evolved her into a fashion designer. But people started asking, could Barbie be more than that? Not that there's anything wrong with those careers. But then we saw Surgeon Barbie, Lawyer Barbie, and Pam. Here we are. We are Reporter Barbie. Wow. And, 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 and here we are. We are Camera woman. Oh my God, I love it. Barbie. So, you know, the evolution <laughs> of Barbie continues. And Mattel says, really, Barbie, though, is a blank canvas. She can be whatever you want her to be. By the way, I love reporter Barbie's accessory. That necklace is That's so exactly cool. what I was thinking, I too. That. Same exact thing. <laughs> Obviously. Vanessa Yurkiewicz, great piece. Thank great you. props. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back. A woke military is a weak military. I'm old enough to remember when black officers, when women, were not allowed to serve. You are setting us back. We need to spend more time ensuring that we can protect the homeland and less time on pronoun training and the rest of this nonsense. What are you so afraid of? 
Why do you keep bringing these divisive issues to the body of this floor? You are out of order. You are exhausting, Mr. Gates. Is no longer well, good Friday morning, everyone. The good news for all of those lawmakers you just saw, they get to reconvene in about an hour and start voting again. A little bit after that, because they are in the midst of a very heated, very long-winded, and very consequential debate that's ongoing right now about that defense over, uh, policy bill that we've been talking about the last yeah. couple of hours. It is, it's become the latest battleground in America's um, culture wars after House Republicans passed several controversial amendments on abortion, transgender, health care, and diversity programs in the military. So we're going to break down the latest developments as lawmakers prepare to reconvene just one hour from now. And special counsel Jack Smith piercing Donald Trump's inner circle. The former president's son-in-law and senior White House advisor Jared Kushner testifying before the grand jury investigating Trump's efforts to overturn the election. The key question he was asked. And Hollywood going on strike for the first time in more than 60 years. Actors are joining writers for an industry-wide shutdown. This hour of CNN This Morning starts now. Well, good Friday morning, everyone. And new this morning, the critical defense bill we've been talking about taking center stage in America's culture wars, not just its defense policy. Late into the night, House Republicans narrowly passing several controversial changes to the annual defense authorization bill. They include measures to eliminate the Pentagon's diversity programs, restrict access to abortion in the military, and prohibit health coverage for gender transition surgeries and hormone treatments for transgender troops. Now, just one hour from now, the House is set to reconvene. Shortly thereafter, consider more amendments after a very long night of heated debate and voting. Top House Democrats are vowing to oppose the bill, which has been for six decades a pillar of bipartisan agreement and serves as the cornerstone of U.S. defense policy. Let's bring in CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox for the latest uh, I want to spin this forward a little bit. We've been talking throughout the course of the morning about what happened last night, and, and that plays into moving this forward. But this bill for six decades has passed on a bipartisan basis. It guides U.S. defense policy. What's the future here? Because it looked a little daunting last night. Yeah, so the first thing that the House has to do is actually pass this bill. And Kevin McCarthy is obviously going to be seeing whether or not all the controversial amendments that he gave his members votes on are enough to hold his conference together. We expect that it likely will be, but we're going to get a little bit of a glimpse on where the House Freedom Caucus is this morning because they're going to have a press conference. We expect that most Democrats are going to peel off and not support this NDAA, despite the fact that it passed out of committee with bipartisan support. Probably just a handful, five to seven Democrats, would back it. Then the Senate has to pass their own version of this bill, which we expect to happen over the next several weeks. Then they'll go to conference and they'll have a discussion. And as one Republican said to me last night, the expectation is that once this bill comes back to the House, it's going to look a lot like that bill that first passed out of the House Armed Services Committee a couple of weeks ago, Phil. I like the Lauren Fox, how a bill becomes a law bill on Capitol <laughs> Hill recitation. I, I do want to ask you real quickly, though. Um, I was talking to a senator last night who literally was like, if they want to do a Republican senator about House Republicans saying if they want to go down this path in terms of breaking away from the bipartisan committee product that came out, um, that's their choice. That just means that they're going to have to eat what we pass. I was paraphrasing a little bit, but the word eat what we pass was definitely in there. True? 
Yeah, I think that that is always the risk. You know, Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise would argue that if you're going to have a conference with the United States Senate, then you want to show the strongest conservative bill that you can pass over in the House, that that gives you a stronger negotiating hand. But it also can put you in a position where you look unreasonable when you come to actually negotiating with the U.S. Senate. And I think that that is probably exactly what that member is insinuating to you. And frankly, he probably hopes that that's the way exactly. things go. Senators don't really like the House guys. All right, Lauren Fox, thank you very yep. much. Well, in about 15 minutes, we're going to speak with Minority Whip Catherine Clark about how Democrats are planning to fight against the bill. Are they willing to let the military uh, authorization bill fail to kill the amendments? We'll ask. And this morning, former President Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, becoming the latest member of Trump's inner circle to testify before the grand jury investigating Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. Sources say some of the questions were about whether Trump was told he lost the election. Former Trump White House aide Hope Hicks also testified early last month. Joining us now to discuss is CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. It's really interesting because, Ellie, these interviews, our understanding is from our reporters, happened recently, um, just in June. What does that tell you about where this investigation is and the status of it? So, Pam, first of all, this tells me that Jack Smith is talking to everybody at all levels, including Donald Trump's inner circle, including Donald Trump's family members, Jared Kushner, his closest advisors, Hope Hicks, as Jack Smith should. His job here is to get all the information, all the facts, and to not be shy about going and questioning people who are close to Donald Trump. The other thing it tells me is if you think about the checklist of relevant witnesses here, those are two more important names that are checked off. And I think it's getting sort of hard to think of an important relevant witness who Jack Smith's team has not yet spoken to. You know, Ellie, the, the reporting that CNN reporting that uh, Kushner was asked uh, about Trump and acknowledging he lost, whether or not he did or did not, why would prosecutors be focused on that particular question? Because we prosecutors are obsessed with intent, because you have to prove intent in any case, and because it can be difficult. And if you think about sort of the levels here that prosecutors would like to see, the best possible evidence that you would want as a prosecutor here of Donald Trump's intent is if he acknowledged that he lost the election. We have heard there's been pieces of testimony from our colleague Alyssa Farrah Griffin, from General Mark Milley and others, that Donald Trump at times did to varying extents acknowledge that he lost. The second best evidence you can have is evidence that he was told in a persuasive way that he lost. That's not as good because there's going to be other people we know who told him that he actually won. But still, you can argue the reasonable inferences off of that as a prosecutor. And then the important thing to keep in mind is even if Donald Trump actually believed he won the election, there are still things that you cannot do. You cannot threaten an election official, for example. But proving that intent is crucial and it's difficult. And the way you get it is you talk to people who were the closest to your subject. I want to ask you, Ellie, the, the special counsel is opposing Trump's efforts to delay the classified documents trial and some pretty strongly worded language in this court filing. Of course, Donald Trump's lawyers have argued it should be postponed, that there is a you know, presidential campaign going on. Uh, who do you think has a, a stronger leg to stand on here with this, their arguments? Well, DOJ's motion that they filed yesterday is hot on the rhetoric, but I think a little short on substance. I'll give you an example. One of Donald Trump's legal team's arguments is we've been given 800,000 documents. We have an obligation to go through those. You're telling us we need to be ready for trial in five months. DOJ yesterday says, yes, we did give them 800,000 documents. And yes, there are more coming, but we've told them which 4,000 are the most relevant. 
That doesn't answer the issue. The defense lawyers still have an actual obligation to go through all of those documents. And by the way, it's not up to the prosecution which documents are most valuable to the defense. So it's a weak response to me from DOJ. The other thing is Trump says there's never been a case, a classified documents case forced to trial in six months. He gives examples of cases that have taken three years to get to trial. DOJ does not offer up any counterexample of any import there. All right, Ali Honig, thank you. Well, this morning, Hollywood's $134 billion industry grinding to a total halt, halt for the first time since 1960. Actors and screenwriters are both on strike. This means production for many films and TV shows is on hold, meaning you could be in for a lot more reality shows, game shows, and reruns. Don't expect to see any of your favorite stars promoting their projects. The Actors Union says it wants a deal to improve wages, benefits, and limit the use of artificial intelligence. The TV and film studios say they offered the highest pay increase in 35 years and offered a proposal to limit AI's impact. The studios also argue that their profit margins are shrinking and that it's a fragile time for their business. The president of SAG-AFTRA, Fran Drescher, not buying it. Yes, I cannot believe it, quite frankly, how far apart we are on so many things, how they plead poverty that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. It is disgusting. Shame on them. Well, joining us now is Julie Fisher, the National Secretary and Treasurer for SAG-AFTRA, former president of the union. She's also an actor, director, singer, and writer. Thanks very much for your time. I think I've been looking at this from a, to some degree, consumer perspective, but also business perspective and having followed labor negotiations on several different industries over the course of the last couple of years, there is a new dynamic right now um, in terms of labor versus business on some of these issues. But the first thing I want to start with is our understanding was there was kind of a last minute offer made by the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers before the deadline. Um, what in that offer specifically was a, was a non-starter? Was there anything in there that you thought got things closer at least? There, there, it wasn't a last minute offer. I'm on the negotiating committee. I have been for uh, a couple of months. We listened to members in what's called the W&W &W process. And we listened to what everybody cared about and what they needed and their hopes and their fears and their dreams. And we put together a proposal package that didn't leave anyone out. So there's 160,000 members of our union and I wanna fight for all of them. It's not just people screaming from ivory towers, movie stars and things like that. We have background artists, we have stunt performers, dancers, singers, broadcasters. Um, and we, um, we did a very thorough combing through of and really tried to leave no one out. And then we went to uh, our, our plenary and put together a, a really massive, aggressive proposal package, brought it to the AMPTP and started to sort of, like I said, comb through and see which things they were amenable and which things they weren't. And it was devastating. It was like, like Fran says, shocking and disgusting. Um, I was really, um, you know, my mother, Connie Stevens, was the secretary treasurer at Legacy SAG, and I never, uh, I, I, I can't imagine her doing what I did, like, for the past month. Um, In what sense? We went before, it's a very, it's designed, well, it's it, the, the, the process of going before the AMPTP and going, please, sir, could I have some more? Um, you know, it's a very, it's designed to really um, belittle you and demean you and disrespect you. And there are things that are 
um, you know, maybe there are some giant asks and then maybe there are some just common sense, humane things that for the cost of living increases that we haven't had, you know, things changed since 1983 when I joined the union. Nothing changed in certain base pay minimums since 1983. I'm sorry, but the world is a very different place right now and you can't have a family or a mortgage. You can't be a journeyman, middle-class actor and, and, right. and have this as your career. You have to have two side hustles. Can I ask, you know, I think- So the, oh, the, the, the last offer- Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was, I was going to say that it, it is a back and forth process. So sure. the last offer was after we had generously given them a 12-day extension. So we did go back and forth across the table, and then we would wait, and we would go through what they countered, and then they apparently would go through what we countered. And then the last-minute offer was shit, frankly. It was nothing. It w they hadn't come forward on anything. And so it, it was insulting. And it was like, this is, what, this is what you took 12 extra days to do. This is what you're gonna come up with. And the AI proposal was abhorrent. So they keep saying, I mean, I, you know, I know who's putting out their communications and it's shame on them. Shame Can I ask, them. you know, one of the things, you, you, make a, you make a really good point in terms of this is a different world right now uh, for the folks uh, that you've been talking about, that you've uh, been in part representing at the negotiating table, but it's also a very different world uh, for the people you're negotiating with or to some degree against, I guess, at this point. I, I want to play something that Disney CEO Bob Iger had to say uh, about some of the things that you guys have put on mm. the table. Listen. There's a level of expectation that they have that is just not realistic. And they are adding to a set of challenges that this business is already facing that is, quite frankly, very disruptive. But you also have to be realistic about it, the business environment and what this business can deliver. It is and has been a great business for all of these people, and it will continue to be, even through disruptive times. Uh, uh, your response to Mr. Iger's position. I heard disrupt, I heard disruptive, I heard um, that we were uncivilized, I heard that, oh, it's been very lucrative for them and it will continue to be, and it's bullshit. There are people that are making hundreds of millions of dollars, they are profiting on our backs. And if we want a tiny little sliver of that ongoing, it is not unreasonable, it is not. Um, you know, I, I, I've been doing this for 40 years. I can't believe I'm saying that, but yes, I have. And, and, and my parent union is Actors' Equity. We, may, we make funny and sing songs and perform on a stage since the beginning of mankind and entertain you and tell stories. And if we're gonna continue to do it on stages and on sc screens, little and small, we have a consumer base. We have, tr we have, we have taught people, we are training them to look at things for like a couple of seconds and then shove it across, you know? Right. Like they, they changed, like Fran says, they changed the business model. You're looking at six, eight, ten, maybe 10 episodes of something for three or four seasons and then they shove it to the side and put something else on. It used to be lucrative, Bob Iger, where it was when I was at on Ellen or Till Death or, you know, at Disney where we did 22, 24, 26 episodes and then we continued to share in the profits with something called residuals. That is going away. We're not doing those long seasons and, and we're not in right. your living rooms night after night after week after month after year. So um, it, it's not unreasonable and it's not disruptive. It is, it is righteous and it is just. 
for us to make sure that the 160,000 people that we represent participate in a very meaningful way in the profits that you're all enjoying on your yachts in Cannes. Charlie Fisher, um, very clearly heated (laughs) personal, but also life. (laughs) (laughs) I think you'll be fine. Uh, Slightly profane, but uh, I'm a supporter of that generally not on camera, but... (laughs) So we're all good. Uh, I appreciate your time. I appreciate the perspective uh, very much. This is a very significant uh, moment, both on labor discussions generally, but also for you guys in your industry. Thanks for your time. Thank you. It impacts all of us who consume this work. Well, this morning, more than 100 million people are under heat alerts as a dangerous weeks-long heat wave across the western U.S. is about to grow worse. Temperatures in parts of California and Arizona are expected to rise above 120 degrees Fahrenheit in the coming days. CNN's Lucy Kavanaugh live in Scottsdale, Arizona with more. So how hot is it, Lucy, where you are? Well, Pamela, it's a chilly 95 degrees right now, but when the sun is fully up, it's expected to hit 115, and it is intense. It's the kind of temperature where, you know, you turn on the cold water in the bathroom and warm water initially comes out of the tap. If you're standing on the pavement for too long, it feels like the soles of your shoes are starting to melt. I learned that the hard way yesterday. We're also expecting the mercury to soar past 118 over the weekend, and when you get to temperatures like that or higher, I mean, you could see disruptions at the airport. Uh, This heat can also kill. It's deadly. It's dangerous. That's according to the city's first ever heat czar. Take a listen. Unfortunately, in our region and many thousands more all across the United States, heat is fatal. It is something that the public needs to take seriously and it can impact everybody. Nobody is immune. And on these really hot days, even small mistakes could have grave consequences. We spent the day yesterday with the Children's Health Hospital in Phoenix, and they were warning not just about heat stroke and heat illness for children, but also how quickly a child could get injured or die if they are left alone in the car for even a short period of time. Take a listen. Parents think is that it's never going to happen to me. I would never forget my kid and the vehicle. But that is actually one of the biggest mistakes that parents think, um, not believing it can happen. It can happen to anybody. And most folks are trying to stay indoors. We spent the day yesterday with a mom and pop air conditioning company that was running around the city trying to install units. They were selling them faster than they could restock them. Business is booming for them. And of course, so many people also not fortunate enough to have access to air conditioners. And so the city has opened up nearly 200, possibly more than 200 cooling and hydration centers for those who don't have an air conditioned home uh, to escape the heat from. Pam. All right. Yeah. Uh, I see why you say it is a chilly 95 degrees when you look at uh, how bad it's going to get. Wow. Lucy Kavanaugh, thank you so much. Well, the Secret Service concluding its investigation into cocaine found at the White House why the case is closed without a suspect ahead. And Democrats and Republicans locked in a standoff over controversial social amendments added to the critical national defense bill. Number two Democrat in the House, Congresswoman Catherine Clark, Massachusetts, joins us to tell us She's, well, we know how she's planning to vote, how the rest of the Democrats are planning to vote. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. In just hours from now, the House is expected to take a final vote on a critical national defense bill after lawmakers voted yesterday to adopt several controversial amendments pushed by conservative hardliners. Now, one of the proposals would make it harder for service members to travel to seek abortions. 
House Democratic leaders stating overnight they plan to oppose the bill known as the National Defense Authorization Act. Republicans, meanwhile, are making their case for attaching these social policy priorities in a defense bill. It is this administration that has turned the Department of Defense into a social engineering experiment wrapped in a uniform. The American people I talk to back home don't want a weak military. They don't want a woke military. They don't want rainbow propaganda on bases. They don't want to pay for troop sex changes. Joining us now, you just heard, um, well, we're going to hear from her, the number two House Democrat Congresswoman Catherine Clark of Massachusetts. Thanks for coming on. So I guess the first question is, are you formally whipping the vote? Let's look at how unprecedented this situation is. We had the national defense bill that came out of committee just a few weeks ago with a nearly unanimous vote, a bipartisan bill, as is the tradition in Congress. And we have the GOP who said, we are going to scrap that bipartisan bill put a big you are not welcome sign out in front of our military bases to women, people of color, LGBTQ, and create a bill that is extreme. So there has been an unprecedented response from Democrats where we have the ranking member, Adam Smith, saying he will now oppose this bill. We have Democrats who have never voted against a national defense bill who will not be voting for this bill because it has been taken hostage by the extremists in the GOP. So uh, let me go back to what I asked. Are you whipping the votes? So we have come out and said as leadership, we are opposed to this and our our caucus is standing strong with the American people. So so, so that's a no. But let, me, let me ask you, though, because for some Democrats in swing states, right, or moderate Democrats, this could be really tough for them. How are they going to go if they if they a vote against it. How are they going to go back home, talk to their constituents about the fact that, you know, they voted against a bill that would give 5%, for example, raises to military members who are struggling on, on food stamps and struggling to pay their rent. Do you know how many Democrats will actually vote in favor of this? I mean, we're going to see how many Republicans, uh, can they pass this bill on their own? This is a bill that they have taken from bipartisan, that's focused on our national security, that is focused on getting those pay raises. This is work that Democrats did, making sure that our military families have the housing they deserve, taking away a copayment for contraception. Um, These are Democratic priorities and issues. So it is very difficult to vote against those, to vote against this bill. That is not easy. But what we've seen is this bill has been transformed into an extremist manifesto. And so we're going to continue, as we have done when we were in the majority, put the American people first and what they need. And what they need is a strong military. And we know that this bill is going nowhere in the Senate because it is disgusting and outrageous. So we will have a chance to work with the Senate and bring a national security bill back that we can support. You say uh, the Republicans have turned this bill into an extremist manifesto. Um, They say that they're trying to put the brakes on a Biden administration that's trying to inject progressive policies into every area of the government. I want to listen to what Republican Congressman Ronnie Jackson, the author of the proposal, um, says about this Pentagon's policy on abortion access. Let's listen. 
The taxpayer money is going directly to support abortions and anyone in this chamber that says differently is blatantly lying to the American people. Taxpayer funding of travel for an abortion is in fact taxpayer funded abortion. What is your response to that? My response to that is this is another step in their march towards a national abortion ban. And we are telling service women in this country, we're telling our military, fight for our freedom, but you don't get freedom. You don't get the freedom to make your health care decisions. You don't get the freedom to make those decisions with your family, your doctor, and in accordance with your faith. So the message here is outrageous to women service members. They're saying you are not allowed to travel for the health care that you need while you are serving our country, defending liberty. And that's why we've seen this issue be so um, wildly unpopular with the American people in election after election, in poll after poll, because the American people understand this is fundamentally taking away their liberty. This is an assault on freedom. And they didn't just stop with abortion. They went right down the line saying that we have, you know, that diversity is not a strength, but a weakness. The American people don't agree with that. They know right. that's by, a strength. By getting rid of the diversity and inclusion programs. and the, That's and right. That's and putting out outrageous for. amendments saying we should go back and rename our bases for Confederate leaders who took up arms against the United States of America. I mean, I really cannot overstate how, how divisive and how racist and misogynist this bill has become. As we have seen Speaker McCarthy capitulate once again to the extreme elements of his party. All right, Congresswoman Catherine Clark, thanks for coming on, sharing your perspective in this uh, quickly unfolding situation. Thank Appreciate you. It. Well, we're learning more about singer Lisa Marie Presley's cause of death. New details from the autopsy and what she complained about moments before she passed. It's coming up next. You are looking live at the White House, beautiful day in Washington, D.C. White House, of course, is where the Secret Service has wrapped up its investigation into a small bag of cocaine found inside the West Wing. The agency said after combing through security systems and indexing several hundred individuals, it has zero suspects. CNN White House reporter Priscilla Alvarez is live for us at the, on the North Lawn this morning. Priscilla, um, how is this possible? Uh, tell From our reporting, from CNN's reporting, Jeremy Diamond, you've been doing great reporting on this. Um, how could they not have any suspects? It's the White House. That's right, Phil. And that's really the big question and has been the question over the last several days. But look, a source familiar with the investigation told me that at least in part, the problem was that there wasn't a camera trained directly on these cubbies where this small bag of cocaine was left. There was surveillance everywhere else, but just not trained on that. So that just immediately made it difficult because they didn't have the surveillance they needed in that one particular area. But as you noted, Secret Service, they combed through the footage they did have. They also looked at the individuals who had come through that part of the White House, a very traveled part of the White House in the days preceding the discovery. And they also did the DNA fingerprinting, but the FBI lab results 
were inconclusive. Now, in their statement, the Secret Service said that at this time, the Secret Service investigation is closed due to a lack of physical evidence. But investigators also couldn't quite determine when that bag of cocaine was left, what day and what time. So still a lot of questions here and ones that we just may never get the answers to. Phil. All right. This is still a mystery. Great reporting, Priscilla Alvarez from the White House. Thank you. Well, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg will join us live as extreme weather and staffing shortages contribute to air travel delays and cancellations. His reaction, what the administration's doing, coming up next. Singer Lisa Marie Presley's cause of death just revealed. According to the Los Angeles County Medical Examiner, the 54-year-old died from complications from a prior weight loss surgery. The report says it was, quote, a small bowel obstruction caused by scar tissue that developed after a previous bariatric surgery years ago. The manner of death is natural. Joining us now is CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. So really interested in what you have to say about this, because hearing of someone dying of obstruction in the small intestine, that might sound surprising. But this was apparently a side effect from this kind of weight loss surgery. Right. So, so there's uh, uh, parts of the story that uh, make a lot of sense and parts that are a little bit more unusual. Uh, what, what they're describing when they say that there was this previous operation that led to this, uh, anytime someone has an operation on the abdomen inside the belly, uh, you can develop scar tissue. Um, it's called adhesions. Think of that like spider webs that sort of develop and some of those spider webs can start to constrict parts of the intestines. This takes place over time. Uh, her previous operation was years ago. Over time, uh, it may actually com compress parts of the intestine to the point where they become obstructed, they, bec they can become strangulated, you can't, they're, they're blocked essentially, you, you're not getting food through, but also there's not enough blood flow. That all happens. Uh, we know that that can happen, and sometimes people have off and on pain for some time. What is unusual, though, is that it sounds like she, maybe she had had pain off and on, but the morning of, she was complaining of some pain and then was found unresponsive at her home, taken to the hospital where she subsequently died. That was a rapid, very rapid time course, and that, that's a bit unusual. Usually if someone is in the hospital with this sort of thing, uh, they can even go back in and operate, do something to relieve that blockage. But she had progressed so far, it sounds like, by the time she got to the hospital that she passed away. So it can happen, but the, the, these blockages as a result of scar tissue, but the idea that they lead to death, especially that quickly, that was more unusual. So it's, it's, it's really sad uh, situation that unfolded there. You know, Sanjay, the report also listed therapeutic and not dangerous levels of oxycodone. <clears throat> can medications like that play a role in something like this? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think when someone has it, dies quickly, you know, you think, did a medication lead to that? Did it interfere with their ability to breathe on their own? Uh, that's not the case here, it sounds like, from the report. Two ways that it might still contribute, though. One is that what I just described earlier can be painful. Oh, and, and opioids, other medications can mask that pain. Someone may go to the hospital a little bit later as a result. And the second thing is opioids can also further slow down your intestines. So a blockage that was already unfolding could have been made worse. But the idea that the opioids themselves led to the death, they're saying that did not happen here. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, really sad. Thank you. I know. Well, dangerous heat waves now affecting much of the U.S. What are the impacts of our travel and infrastructure? Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg will join us next.
Well, as the climate warms, you could expect more flight delays from bad weather. That's according to United CEO Scott Kirby. Here's what he said this week about flight delays, or as he calls them, irregular operations events. I also think irregular operations events are you know, going to be more likely to occur as the climate warms. More heat in the atmosphere, thermodynamics 101, we're going to have more thunderstorms. There's not much you can do with the thunderstorm. You're going to cancel a lot of flights uh, when the thunderstorm happens. If you can't depart the airport, you can't depart the airport. Um, that's not going to change. But what you can focus on is the recovery. Well, earlier this week, intense rainstorms inundated the Northeast, turning streets into rivers. The severe weather also causing thousands of flight delays and cancellations. On top of that, the air travel system doesn't seem to have enough bodies to deal with the disruptions. Joining us now is Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Mr. Secretary, thanks for your time. I want to start with what Kirby calls the irregular operations events. If climate change is clearly uh, only getting worse, and we're seeing it across the country right now, what can the administration do? What can airlines do to address something that doesn't seem to be going away or lessening anytime soon? Well, there's no escaping the fact that when you have more severe weather events, both them happening more often and them getting more severe, that's going to affect every form of transportation. We're assessing what those northeast floods have been doing to the roads in New York State and in particular in Vermont. And of course, that's going to affect flight operations. So there's uh, there's a reality in front of us that, uh, you know, we're doing everything we can in the long run fight against climate change to stop this from getting any worse than it has already gotten. We also have to face the reality at hand. That's why for the first time ever, under President Biden's uh, bipartisan infrastructure law, we have billions of dollars in a fund that is specifically for resilience. So with a road, it means if a road is getting washed out annually by what used to be considered a thousand year flood, instead of putting it back the same way it was year after year, let's move it, let's redesign it, let's make it safer and more resistant to floods or droughts, wildfires, or, or whatever the biggest threat is. But on the aviation side too, we have to prepare for this. Now. Uh, the other remark that, that he made that I agree with is if, if you can't control what the weather is going to be, you have to work on everything you can control about how quickly the system will recover. And I will say that I've been struck by the improvements compared to one year ago that we've seen in the national airspace where we had uh, dramatic storms and uh, disruptions hitting our major hubs, but the system recovering in a way that we would not have seen uh, a year ago. Uh, today, cancellations are below 2%, and we've seen them come back to that more quickly right. than they would have uh, a year ago uh, in terms of dealing with those severe thunderstorms. And that's part of what we're closely watching, making sure the airlines are positioning themselves to recover and then making sure right. we're doing everything we can on the department side and FAA side to make a, the system more flexible. Right. Uh, I do want to ask you about uh, the CEO himself. Uh, he had some very strong words for the FAA during the meltdown late in June uh, when I think United canceled around 3,000 flights. This week, he called the FAA particularly helpful and the air traffic controllers heroic. Um, did you have anything to do with that shift in tone? Well, uh, certainly we have worked to make sure that there is excellent communication between the FAA and all of the airlines. And look, uh, we have a complicated relationship with the airlines, right? We are often coming down on them hard when it comes to uh, customer protection at the very same time that we're working side by side with them to try to make sure that flight operations are, are going well. We are their regulator from a safety perspective as well as a competition perspective, but we're also working to make sure the U.S. aviation sector, uh, it, its interests are being protected 
detected in international markets. So look, there's always going to be a, a sometimes very intense push-pull between us and the airlines. But as a regulator, first and foremost, we're going to focus on making sure that passengers are protected. And as a general rule, I think that uh, when we have good, strong rules for the airlines, the airline sector ultimately benefits too because the public is more right. confident in what they're getting when they buy that ticket. Do you believe that airlines are overscheduled at this point? Let me say this. Anytime we see evidence that an airline is deliberately or knowingly scheduling flights that they can't realistically serve, we're going to investigate and we could take action to respond to that, including punitive action. Uh, we right. are concerned about that. We have some open investigations right now. But I will say the airlines are scheduling more conservatively than they were before. That's one of the things I pushed them for, uh, pushed them on last year when even on so-called blue sky days where weather wasn't much of a factor, seeing all these delays and cancellations that were completely unacceptable. Uh, they've got to have schedules that they can serve with the assets that they have. If they don't, that's obviously unfair to passengers who get left in the lurch. And it could also be an indication of an unfair competitive practice. In other words, if an airline is trying to gain market share by selling a schedule that they can't actually back up in a particular route pair, uh, that's a competition issue. And that's another reason why, as a regulator, we're watching very closely. Can I ask you, I want to get to Bidenomics in the, in the economy in a sec, but I do have one final question for you uh, on airline travel. The idea of pilot shortages has been a significant issue. There are a couple of proposals on Capitol Hill right now in the FAA authorization bill. One, to, to increase the re retirement age for pilots, I think from 65 to 67. There's also, uh, I think, proposals floating around about, about easing the number of hours that would need to be flown uh, to some degree. Do you support those or are you in favor of them right now? Look, this is right now in the middle of, of complex and sensitive negotiations on Capitol Hill. But the bottom line I'll say is that anything that emerges needs to put safety first. And uh, we can look at a, a lot of different strategies and, and, and policies, but uh, we can't do anything that would weaken safety for passengers, for airlines. That's always going to be our top priority as a department. Can I ask you, uh, talking about the economics issue, you've been one of the kind of leading voices for the administration on what is now uh, firmly referred to as Bidenomics to some degree. It's been a good couple of weeks on that front data-wise. But I wanted to ask you about something J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon said in an interview with The Economist. Take a listen. Do you think Bidenomics has been a success? God, it's a tough question to answer. It shouldn't be political. It should be purely economic. And also the fiscal spending, $5 trillion of excess fiscal spending over two years, some to counter COVID, but some was far more in excess of that, is causing the inflation. He was nuanced in terms of the issues that he took with some of the approaches that you guys have taken, but I think was broadly suspect of uh, the overarching theory of the case. What's your response to that? Well, uh, look at the numbers and look at where we are. You know, uh, it's pretty rare to have inflation under 4% and unemployment under 4% at the same time. Uh, matter of fact, that's extraordinary, especially where you consider where we've come from. Under President Biden's leadership, uh, more than 13 million jobs created. That's never happened under any president in anything close to this period of time. And in something that matters a lot to me coming from the industrial Midwest, a lot of those are manufacturing jobs, the kinds of jobs we used to be exporting overseas. 
employees. Uh, you know, got, got a lot of respect for him as a, as a business leader. Uh, but remember, one of the core elements of Bidenomics is putting a focus on the middle class and working people, making sure that the economy grows from the bottom up and the middle out. And that's obviously not always the same priority you're going to see in, in the investment banking community uh, versus how important that is and how central that is to what President Biden and this administration are about. Right. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Unfortunately, we're running up against the end of this hour. I could talk to you about this stuff for a while. Thank you very much, sir. Appreciate it. And up next, Thank you. Hollywood's, up next, Hollywood's biggest labor fight in decades. Actors now going to the picket lines and joining writers in a historic strike. The impact on Hollywood films ahead. The father of a girl with cerebral palsy making it his mission to help people with disabilities get moving. Meet CNN hero John Watson. We want to lead people to a lifetime of fitness. Safety's first, but we want them to have fun. We want them to want to do it. There you go! <laughs> when we connect with them on that level, they'll show up to exercise. We do Pilates, yoga, dance. We have a wide range of abilities. Reach, 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 reach. Somebody that may have limited movement, we specifically try to get them to move to how they can. We all want to be part of something. They just don't get the opportunity that often. All right. <laughs> we create a sense of pride, belonging, and love. To see John's full story and nominate your own CNN hero, go to CNNHeroes.com. One new this morning, India just launched a mission to the moon. Four, three, two, one, zero. Plus five seconds. Liftoff normal. Here we have a majestic liftoff of... It's India's second attempt at executing a controlled landing of a spacecraft on the moon, and if successful, we'll make India only the fourth country to do so. Happy Friday. Happy Thanks for Friday. hanging out this week. We made it. It was yeah. fun. It was great to be with all of you. Thank you for bringing us into your living rooms, your bedrooms uh, this week. It's been a lot of fun for us. CNN News Central starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.